1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wiseau, a unique blend of hunting, fishing, wildlife conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC. Conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Taurus, award winning pistols and revolvers. Mossberg, American built, American strong. Habit, our gear, your adventure. Welcome to another episode of DSC's Campfires with me, Larry Weisson, and today I've got my dear friend, compatriot, All kinds of. I serve as a co-host to the Journey TV show, and of course, you're very much involved, Brandon, with uh, Chris Daniels as well on Stonehurst Production, and you guys not only produce the Journey, you produce my podcast and all that kind of thing. And you're a regular, and I think you're probably going to be even a little bit more of a regular as we go into the future as well, too. So, welcome back to the campfire. Thank you. It's always
2: (laughs) an honor to be here. It is I, my honor. Anytime we get to spin around a campfire, I absolutely love it. There's no telling where we'll go with it, <laughs> but today I have a really good idea over my shoulder, and I'm <laughs> more than happy to have this conversation.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I, I think there's a theme, at least a, a beginning theme to today's podcast episode, and, and it is, it, it's mule deer. Uh, I'm been enamored by mule deer since I've been a little bitty kid watching my cousins and friends of my dad go to Colorado and come back with these huge bucks back many years ago and certain years there, you could actually take more than one mule deer in some of those units. So I long for the days, I mean, I'd, they'd show up at our house and show off their antlers and their their deer. And I mean, there'd be drool marks from the time I walked out <laughs> of the house all over the deer, all the way back in, you know, dreaming of that day. and. Mule deer. You've been a wildlife biologist, well too. It's truly one of those iconic species when it comes to North America, isn't it?
2: Absolutely, no doubt. They're they're not only majestic. They're not only absolutely stunningly beautiful, <laughs> but they are die hard tough. <laughs> uh, just everything from the tips of their hooves <laughs> to the tips of their antlers, the- to 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 the beacons they have for ears. Everything about them is fascinating. They're They're a handsome, handsome species.
1: You know, to me, I've been very fortunate. I've hunted some of most of the North American big game animals and abroad as well, too. But to me, if asked what's the most magnificent animal there is, particularly in North America, it is a widespread, double-forked, if you will, mule deer, and he's massive, and he's tall, and he's standing on this ridge, and he, he, he when he turns his head, he doesn't turn his head, the world revolves underneath him. <laughs> one of those Chuck Norris kind yeah. of things, if you will. But to me, that that mule deer, number one, I love the, the country that he lives in. He is somewhat adaptable, of course, found primarily or Totally, I guess west of the uh, the Mississippi River, starting in kind of the plain middle mm-hmm. plain states, and then going west and north. But uh, he is something very very special as far as I'm concerned, and and uh, they've gone through some stages. As I mentioned early years ago the mule deer numbers were extremely high and there were a lot of people that hunted colorado and over the years not only there but other states as well too and over the last several years the mule deer's kind of taking it on the chin a little bit yeah in that the numbers are not quite what they were and and there's there's several factors there that we'll discuss going forward a little bit but uh I know that you love mule deer and you really have been wanting to hunt mule deer for a long time. And, and this year actually got a chance to do so. Of course, we got to have better chances coming up in the future. But what was what is it is about mule deer that that fascinate you? You you mentioned some of the things, but
2: what else? You, you know, it's odd is as, as much time as I spend in western Texas from all the management stuff I've done in, right. in school that I never I never grabbed on to to a mule deer and I have always thought they're the most beautiful creature out there. And here recently, spending as much time as we have on the Hargrove Ranch with AA outfitting, you're just, they're all around you. I, you know what, I, I think it is the fact that you just, with, with, with the mule deer, their body sizes are so great. Their, their endurance, their, their ability to see things, to hear things, it's, it's a whitetail. You know, which, I, you know, I love nothing more than a whitetail. But I feel like it's a whitetail on steroids, have you will. And the beauty from the, the black patches on their face to the black lines around their nose to the way that the antlers form, you know, and, and, and just like a whitetail, they all form a little bit different. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? Just even by looking at these two right here. But the fact of when you are glassing, we've all glassed. All dad moved last elk and moved last white tuck, especially in that big canyon country. But there is, to me, there is nothing more heart stopping than glassing, and you catch the flicker of that antler. You know, there's that split second where you don't know if it's a dead mesquite tree or if it's antlers, but when you find those antlers and you, or you find those, that dark hide, it is just, it's almost heart stopping. And it, to me, it doesn't matter if it's a little four corner, you know, if it's a, you know, 180 inch um, buck, I just, they absolutely fascinate me. They, they almost start, stop my heart and I fall in love every time I see one, you know, they're just, they're, they're beautiful. They're absolutely beautiful.
1: And I I totally agree. I've I've been very fortunate. I shot my first mule deer a lifetime ago to most people. And back in 1970, I shot my first mule deer in western Texas on a ridge overlooking what they call persimmon gap. Now, if if you follow mule deer, you have heard about Greg Simons, who shot a almost 300 net, mule deer in texas oh three years ago or something like that well where that mule deer came from was about a mile and a half from where i shot my first mule deer many many years ago but those are desert mule deer and and if you look over uh brandon's shoulder that's absolutely a rocky mountain mule deer basically there are two types of mule deer when you, for most Categorizing as far as people are concerned, and that's the the, the Rocky Mountain Mule deer and then the, the desert Mule deer, such as what we've been addressing there on the Hard Grove and here in Texas. The Rocky Mountain has a tendency to uh, be somewhat larger because he lives in a colder temperature and all those kind of things. And they have a tendency to be somewhat migratory to where there is a Summer or fall and range, and then in early winter, and then they drift out a lot of that higher country to uh, some of the low country. So they're somewhat migratory, and organizations like the Mueller Foundation have done a great job in creating those corridors or maintaining those corridors, I guess I should say, where they're doing overpasses and underpasses where those deer can come from and go to without crossing the the road per se. And then we've got the desert mule deer that's more or less the crook eye subspecies of of, uh, the mule deer. And they have a tendency to be a little bit smaller bodied because they live in warmer temperatures and all that have somewhat smaller antlers, but then you get into areas of uh, parts of Sonora, Mexico, and my God, they grow some big antlers there. And those are desert mule deer as well too. They are,
2: they are. And there's something in that country that just really stimulates that blood flow and stimulates that growth. I I don't know exactly what it is. You know, I, I wish going back that I would have spent more time studying the mule deer. If I would have known it would have taken me over in my older years, I would have definitely spent more time. But, you know, as for whitetail, in the management side of things, I've learned one very important thing. <laughs> Everything is slowed down with a mule deer. What a whitetail will do in a year, it takes a mule deer three years to do. And that's interesting to me because they are so, they, they, they come off as if they would be ahead of, ahead of the curve. And that's not the case in most most situations.
1: No, it's not. You know, whitetail though, she's on really good nutrition level as a six-month-old breed. Most of the time, mule deer don't breed until they're two and a half years old. Antlers is an interesting thing. There's a recent study that was done by the uh, Borderland Wildlife Institute at Sol Ross. And it was a 10-year study that where they went in and tagged mule deer buck fawns to where they could get a substantial Number to, to deal with, and according to that particular research, mule deer reached their maximum normal, ma- maximum antler potential at five and a half years of age. You know, for years. Every place I've ever dealt with, we've always thought they did not grow their best antlers until much later. Now, what they did find out is they maintained that level, and out of that particular herd that they were dealing with, at five and a half, the average buck scored like 152, 153, and he would maintain that until he was like 9 or 10 years old. But that's when they reached their maximum then there was another research project that was done in the Lower Texas Panhandle by uh, Caesar Clayberg Foundation, uh, wildlife Foundation, and in, uh, our institute, or whatever that, Cesar Clayberg Foundation, I think is what it is. And they basically found the same thing, that those mule deer in that Lower Panhandle tended to grow their best antlers at five and a half. And it's not that I question the research, but I've also been on places where those, some of those deer that I looked at, we had, tagged as well and they did not grow their best antlers until they were like eight, nine years old. So there, to me, there's always these large family groups and maybe that's what we're seeing there with the, the five and a half being the maximum, I mean, when they reach their maximum antler development.
2: But just like a whitetail, the habitat, the nutrient level that's there, <clears throat> the herd, all of that plays a factor into that number. Oh I mean, yeah. We, we, we have ranches that we work on that five and a half, they're peaking. They're good. They're great. But we also have a ranch that we hunt every single year that you're a fool to take five and a half year old deer off that place because you know that yeah. in seven and a half, they're going to peak, you know? And so I think it's different.
1: I mean, and it's... And, and, I, and to me, they're these little gene pools, uh, There were uh, in the dealings I had in South Texas for many years, and I had the opportunity over a 20 plus year period to look at some, the same ranches year after year after year after year. And there were always certain deer that were, for whatever reason, had a part of an ear missing or there was a white spot. And a lot of times what we would do when those deer were very recognizable, we would just, they're off limits, we're gonna see what that deer does in his later ages and in some of those places we watched them go like five six seven and they you know really good antlers and then like eight they slip down a little bit nine they slipped down then they got to, when they got to be 10 11 12 13 all of a sudden they put on like 50 inches of bc score and i'm talking about 50 inches of antler not spread in those extreme older ages so to me their genetic Things that work. We dealt with one buck that uh, we knew he was 13 years old. At 13, this deer netted 232, Man. and which is a pretty good Boone and Crockett score. Now, and the best he'd ever been at that point was probably about a 190. You know, maybe right at 200. Just. And yet deer. that last year of his life, and he actually died that year. But and we were able to recover the antlers. He he scored 232. Now that's an exception, but in that area where that buck was from, a lot of those bucks in that basic area did not have their best antlers until they got to be like eight, nine, 10 years of age. Of course, we couldn't necessarily manage for those kind of deer because you're gonna have natural death losses and all that kind of thing. So I love what they're doing with the mule deer study out there and I hope that they continue that. And I'd like to see them continue it for about 20 years. And now let's look and see what the next 10 years does.
2: Yeah, and I think that it's all about the decisions that, you know, they make and the decisions that every hunter makes. You know, there's, there's every decision that is made from the harvest of these animals, just like this year. You know, the issue we ran into, you know, some of that western Texas ground that we hunted, there were deer that we went in looking for, mule deer. And because of the drought, because of the lack of nutrients that the habitat could provide, what did we find? We found so, the deer, but boom.
1: Yeah, they went, some of them went way down. We had a gentleman that we sold a hunt, that bought a hunt on the, with AA, uh outfitting there on that particular property through the DSC uh, foundation. And, The deer that he ended up taking was a deer that I passed up the previous year, and the previous year got really good looks at him, got some great photographs of him. That deer was probably in the lower 160s, but he had extreme mass and a very distinctive, almost off to the side kind of, kind of mm-hmm. rack if you get right down to it that gentleman ended up taking that deer not very far from there. there was no question his antler style and everything was exactly the same and that deer probably in that one year lost 30 Bennett crockett points or 30 inches of, of antler development yep. he lost a lot of the mass he lost a lot of the time length in the main beam spread he lost a little but
2: because he was a, he was a pretty high deer. Oh, he, he I mean, it was, looked like somebody took his antlers and stuck them in a dehydrator. Yeah,
1: exactly. And the interesting thing about it was too, once he had taken that deer, and the guy was very, just absolutely thrilled with it, as he should be because it was a really good deer. He was in a lot of different ways, particularly at, at desert mule deer. But once we took the deer and got all the photographs and started taking him apart, and we pulled, I pulled the cape off of him, and uh, including caping it all the way down to the skull and that deer had huge pedicles, and yet the antlers right above the burr were about maybe two-thirds of what that that pedicle was, and in a normal year, that antler mass should have been at least equal, and in a really good nutritional year, that mass should have been larger than what that pedicle is.
2: Which we saw that with almost every deer we took this last year, including including the the whitetails. Yeah, I was
1: going to say, including the whitetails as well, too. And, And, you know, we were taking deer that,
2: on the whitetail side, that we knew were well, I don't think we shot anything this year that was under seven and a half years old. But uh, even those guys, I mean, everything that we saw, everything that we touched, even ones when we were in camp, you know, just like Jeffrey, I shot that right. beautiful buck um, in, in northern Dow, in northern Texas. Yeah. That deer was the same way. Yeah. I mean, still, no matter what, they were gorgeous deer. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, they, they definitely, definitely were hurting. And that affected us this year as well because it, you know it's, it's hard to take those deer when you know that man well maybe next year he'll bounce back the year prior he was better and you know that's just that's the risk you take every year when you pass them but you got to be okay with that That that's part yep. of the management that's part but, of allowing that animal to achieve that goal
1: that's exactly right that mule deer herd that we're addressing in uh, kind of southern central part of the texas panhandling of course mule deer are found basically from oklahoma going up into canada and in uh particularly western oklahoma through kind of the last third of texas down into mexico and from there west and same thing from canada west the uh and as we were talking about earlier there're rocky mountain mule deer and there're desert mule deer and other subspecies found within each of those huge areas if you will this last year as a whole antlers were down a lot of places including some of the areas with the exception maybe of some of the areas down in sonora because there for whatever reason is the rain. not only did they have the rain they had the rain when they needed it Mm -hmm. so very often it most of the West is so dependent upon moisture for producing vegetation. And it's not just necessarily the amount of rainfall, it's the timeliness of that rainfall. And what rainfall was out there in that ranch that we were, they were talking about, it just, it, what rainfall there was, just came at the wrong time. It made fat deer.
2: <laughs> they, they were. That was the case, absolutely the case. But, and, and that's what was odd the most, was you were seeing these deer, and, and they were just in beautiful condition. But the antlers, they just, like you said, you could tell. That oh rain goodness. came well after we got, well after they, they started to shed their velvet, well after the growing season, which, at the end of the day, at least they were healthy. I just wish we'd have gotten it four <laughs> months
1: prior, you know? Well, we're going in, those deer were in extremely good body condition going into the rut, and they in a lot of the, the western states this year, Early on, they had, and I want to come back to the western states particularly, they had moisture. And it it came late in some instances. Of course, some of the areas like in California and Nevada and and parts of Utah and Colorado and all those, they, they were pretty well hard hit by drought situations but the mule deer is one of those species that does reasonably well in in sparse vegetated country for whatever reason they they get by where sometimes the whitetail doesn't get by with it.
2: And, and it's it's incredible to me, you know, with, with my experience, you know, being where we've been in the Western part, you know, all those weeks and days we spent driving around, you know, there, there was only two things you could really identify for those deer to eat and that'd be ephedra or it'd be fillery yeah and you know you look at it and go how are they maintaining that nutritional level when you know it hasn't rained enough to even soak the ground where you can eat, you know beyond a morning dew for them to consume enough of that to maintain that level but they do you know especially in those areas that we can't reach and in some of the you know i i, I sure was looking real hard and couldn't find any other source in that that particular valley beyond those two things.
1: There were a few mesquite beans, and of course, the 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 pulp on those beans, not necessarily the beans themselves, but the, I think the beans probably run about 6% or something like that. But the energy that's there in the carbohydrates in and the, and the sucrose, in the, the pulp of that bean, that made a lot of difference, I think. And then you, you mentioned the, uh, the ephedra, the their ephedra is, uh, Mormon tea—it's called all kinds of things. It looks like a like a shrub without any leaves on it. It's just all green, yep. but it's it's a very one of the better dibrow species that we have in the western part of the country. And then you mentioned the fillery. The fillery is a low-growing. <laughs> some people call them a weed, but it's a it's a it's a broadleaf forb, if you will. It's green on top, and the underside of the leaves are, are kind of reddish, and that particular plant for whatever reason, this year just absolutely blossomed. And I think that was a big part, and it is ideal deer food for both whitetail and mule deer, and once it gets a little bit taller, cattle as well too, but particularly for the deer species, for both whitetail and mule deer, which both exist on that property, it's it's a good energy food, it's a good protein food, and a lot of that country that we're looking at there is uh, the the uh, double mountain Park of the Brazos River runs through a, a portion of it and a lot of that's alluvial soil and all that kind of thing so pretty good mineral base to begin with and, and uh, so I think that helped but you know in that country gets a little bit of snow every once in a while too Yeah. but then snow is so important throughout the west but this year the snows have been this winter the snows have been uh unbelievable amount of it. I, I'm talking to a friend of mine that's up in the, that he has properties that he oversees in parts of Wyoming and Utah. And, oh my gosh, in Idaho and Montana, a little bit in Colorado. And he said, some of those areas, they had 1800% above normal snowfall.
2: Well, it, it is, it is May 2nd today. Yes. And, a week and a half ago, I was standing outside in shorts and doing my honeydews in the flower beds. And that friend was texting me from Wisconsin and there was about two and a half foot of snow on the ground and it was steadily coming down. And, yeah. and, I, and I asked him, I said, you know, is, is that normal? You know? He, he said, for this year, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, just,
1: it's the new norm. There'd been so much snow, and the thing about it is a lot of the western states, such in parts of Wyoming and in, in Colorado and Idaho and Montana, there's some areas where the snow is going to be there for a long time. But a lot of that country, too, is where it's not that way, where you get heavy snows, it melts away. That's a lot of times where you find those wintering areas for for elk as well as, as mule deer and that has not happened this year in, in visiting with some of the game department guys scattered around and and ranchers and, and a dear friend of mine jim zumbu lives up in cody jim for years was with outdoor life and reported on all those western states as to what was going on and i was visiting with jim a couple of days ago and And I said, Jim, what does your part of the world look like? And he says, he lives there just west of Cody. He said, we're okay here. He said, we've got snow, but it melts, and it seemed like our deer and antelope were doing reasonably well. He said, but uh," he he told me a couple of other guys to call in other parts of of, of that area. And in some of those areas, in not necessarily isolated areas, but rather broad areas, they lost at this point, they know they've lost anywhere between 40 to 80% of the total deer herd. Oh, uh, pretty much the same thing with, uh, uh, with the pronghorn antelope in areas, there, there've been a tremendous death loss. They've lost tens of thousands of deer across the West, like in Colorado, Portsmouth, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, and, and Idaho. To where that's truly devastating in in a lot of different ways. Now the elk have, have fared a little bit better because they're longer legged, they, they they move a little bit farther. But the mule deer has truly truly taken it on the chin in some of those areas this year. So uh, it may take a while to come back. At the same time, this past year there was a research project set up in 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 a part of Wyoming where they went in and captured as fawns 100 mule deer buck fawns, or 100 mule deer fawns, I'll take that, not not buck hawns, but 100 mule deer fawns. And as of about two weeks ago, 98 of those 100 had died. Oh, man. So you you start thinking about those, they're not gonna be any five and a half year old or eight and a half year old deer five and a half years from now, eight and a half year olds. The, the, the pronghorn is, had the same way, but the pronghorn has a tendency to bounce back a little bit quicker because of the reproduction rate and in those situations they have a tendency to twin. But as we were talking about earlier, mule deer a lot of time don't breed until they're two and a half. So it is gonna be a slow process of, of bringing that population back up to where even where it was. Well,
2: we've had the same thing happen here in Texas. But three years ago, four years ago, now. Oh yeah, exactly. We've had that, you know, thirty-year freeze, and it and it killed a lot of animals. It did, especially on the exotic side. There wasn't very, very, very few um, axis made it through it. But even there, we we're seeing a major, major decrease
1: in whitetail does. Uh, particularly as, as the ranch that we were, were addressing earlier, mm-hmm. and they carry on an, an excellent management program, yes. not only in terms of wildlife, but in terms of cattle. Yes. Uh, Craig Archer, the, with a partner, owns the A Outfitting, and we've known those guys for a while now, and I've known Craig for years, and I knew their, the management program that he carried on to where there is never a lack of vegetation no. on that property based upon Livestock grazing. Nice. And when it goes into very severe drought, he's he's selling off cattle, moving cattle to different areas, so there's always some food. And there's yeah, always
2: we, a, rehabilita- a,
1: a yes. habitat rehabilitation program exactly. taking place. But it, as you were talking about, that freeze that was in Texas in, this is 2012, 23 in actually in 21 and then again another one in twenty two really had an effect on even white-tailed deer in that area.
2: Yeah, and I think we've seen a decrease in or a slow progression towards those mature class deer, including the the the, the, the amount of does, Sorry, I couldn't spit that one out. The amount of does that we've been able to see has has majorly decreased. And I think we're getting close to the tail end of that, but, but we, we definitely, I, I believe that this last year was probably the, the the biggest it was in us feeling that of the lack of mature deer on their feet, the lack of mature deer visible to us. You know, I felt like in the first year se- and two-year-olds, it was fairly plentiful. We saw a fair amount of three-year-olds, but the amount of does just... I mean, of course, we have to take out Sterling City. We, we had good <laughs> luck there, but, but most of the time, you know, they just the numbers weren't there.
1: Yeah, I was fortunate. I started hunting with Craig several years ago, and I can remember driving through. It's, it's a combination of a breaky country of absolutely beautiful red dirt breaks, river bottom, Canyon, uplands yeah. to where it's. It's, it's, it's sandy type country with shin oak, which is shin oak because it comes up about the shins, you know, and then a scattering mesquite. And uh, that entire area, having hunted it for several years now, that population on whitetail deer greatly, greatly decreased during this time frame we're talking about. But interestingly, you know, when we were looking at white-tailed deer and does with fawns and looking at mule deer with does and fawns, The mule deer population this last year, for whatever reason, as it has the last two or three years, the fawn survival rate on those has been, if you take out everything below less than two years old or two and a half years old, probably has been right at 100% fawn crop. And the whitetail population there this year, and under living side by side, it was probably 20 to 30%, and that may be a good. 10% 10% higher than what it actually is. I may be giving them more than what they're what, So it's really interesting to see how the mule deer reacted under those circumstances, as did the whitetail. And mm-hmm. usually it's the mule deer that takes it on the chin and the whitetail is up on top and on that property and in that area, it's just a reverse.
2: It is, and that's, you know, again, it's one of those things where we don't know the definite answer, but that's what keeps us here. That's oh, what keeps absolutely. us doing what we're done. Because what we think is gonna happen like you said, it reverses. It, it just, it's the opposite. It, it was just absolutely the opposite. Now we have to adapt to it. And, and that's what we've spent the last year doing. We've adapted to that. And and we're making plans and changing harvest numbers and changing how we're providing, you know, habitat management works and changing how we're, like I said, harvesting the animals. And those are crucial steps to regaining Things back to the way they were, or getting them
1: better, or getting them better exactly. Or getting them better. Our goal is always to at least maintain, but then to try to improve everything as well too. And and again, they're here in Texas particularly and. And across the west too, there, there's lots of private landowners who do an absolutely fantastic job when it comes to managing the, their herds that are on, the, not their herd, but the herds that are on the property that, that they live in. and to the point of uh, making certain that there is nutrition in terms of proper cattle range grazing, if you will, or or in some instances, even though they're not planted as food plots for, for deer or elk, where they're planting a fair amount of alfalfa and, and wheat and maybe some other uh, type, of cereal grain type crops to where those deer benefit and those elk benefit from it. But there was, a, again, this year in particular, based on the conversations I'm having with a lot of different people throughout those particular five mountain states, the mule deer in particular and pronghorn antelope to a lesser extent, and then elk it will didn't seem to be affected in most years, although they did lose some elk. But it's gonna take a while for those herds to, to come back. The good thing is, is there is tremendous moisture because a lot of that country it was in severe drought. So, you know, the water table is gonna come up, there's gonna be vegetation. The only thing that I hope that some of these game departments in the western states do Predation in terms of coyotes and mountain lion and bears and all that in a very healthy herd, they have an effect on it. But when animals such as these, as we have right now, our deer species and the antelope are really devastated in certain areas, I'm hoping that they will allow or even truly encourage the taking of more predators this year to give that deer segment that antelope segment in some areas even the elk segment that opportunity to start crawling back up again
2: I, I i hope that they would increase the amount of tags that they're allowing for the wolves and the coyotes and, and the mountain lions because if you've taken away the mule deer herd at 60 percent. yeah what are they going to go for? yeah they're going to find that food source and hopefully we don't manage that with <laughs> yeah. hunting
1: yeah or hopefully the the, the predators don't find it is yeah what i was trying to say
2: well you would think that that would be the number one best decision to make in that situation to to, to, to allow that balance and that's what hunting is for absolutely we're here to, we're here to give that balance provide that balance and i hope that our fellow people that are out there making those decisions <laughs> fellow conservationists and hunters see it the same way and and uh, you know we need hunters out there getting those tags going after those predators because if not predation is going to remain it just remain it might it might generate it in a way that could affect the elk herd even more Oh, yeah. They could push them into town to go. Yeah, I mean, they could or go just just the A ton of different Or just decrease that ways.
1: population to where it is almost impossible to bring it back. As, as we're recording this particular podcast, there is discussion with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service about, again, delisting the wolf and delisting the grizzly bear, particularly in, in those areas where they have truly, totally recovered. And hopefully they will be allowed to do so to where we don't have somebody that, that thinks with the. Uh, non-scientific information that's just purely going on in motion to, uh, to try to file suits to prevent this because the grizzly bear has recovered the gray wolf has recovered and they too once they reach a level they need to be controlled not not done away with by any means, but those populations need to be controlled no less than what the game species populations need to do.
2: And and like you said, most importantly, these decisions should be made from a scientifical, biological, factual decision process, not from an emotional one. They shouldn't be made off of feelings and off of emotions. They need to be made off of a conservation-minded, biological, scientific approach that are factual.
1: And I'm hoping that may happen this time, and I'm hoping that, that there won't be some lawyer somewhere that files something against them to prevent them from to really truly delisting in the wolf or the or the grizzly bear either one.
2: But uh, with that being said, that on that fact, that that is one of the benefits of. Becoming part of an organization like DSC, correct, absolutely, because that money goes towards. Even though people may see the elephant and they think Africa and they think of you know safaris, that that's the furthest thing from it. It, it is for things like this that we're fighting right here on our own on our own soil. Yes, sir. And that is crucial. It's not just the fight across the pond. No. it's the fight that we have here. And there there may be people watching this that have no clue what we're even talking about, but. It's becoming part of an organization like DSC that is out there fighting for your right to be able to step out there and hunt and be on your property and pass that heritage down to your kids and your grandkids. Without those memberships, DSC isn't able to fight for for our heritage, for for, for conservation, for wildlife, because we can't leave it in the hands of the people making the decisions based upon feelings and emotions.
1: Yeah, yeah and conservation costs. Uh, the hunters are the one who foot the bill when it comes to anything having to do with conservation, not just game animals. Were it not for the hunter, there would be no whooping crates. There would be no, you name the species, it's the hundred dollars who pay for the conservation of these and, and the wise use of. And that's what conservation is, it's the wise use of. It's not the preservation because when you start preserving one particular thing, So many other things lose kind of thing. And and with with the proper hunting, sustained hunting and all the plans that we we build around wild species dealing with big game species or or hunting huntable species is to have species of that or animals of that species available many years from now. Absolutely. It's sustainability harvest and that sustained harvest is what keeps that population in check and allows that population to continue and to thrive in the future as well too.
2: There's two very important things I tell everybody and you do too. What's the two best things that you can do as a hunter? Become a member of a conservationist organization like DSC, and for Pete's sake, buy a hunting license. Whether you intend to use it or not, buy a hunting license. Those dollars go towards fighting conservation, go towards defending our rights as conservationists, as hunters, as game managers, habitat whatever you want to call yourself, whatever we are, that's what those dollars go towards. And that's the only way to keep this, where it can be passed down, whether you're fishing or you're hunting, or doesn't matter what it is. That is what the most important thing is.
1: You're exactly right. The DSC, and you can go to the uh, WWW Big or the foundation, DSC Foundation, that I served as a member of the board of directors and now serve as a uh, 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 advisor kind of thing, and uh, you can go and learn more about what these folks do and where the dollars go, and there you can go to www.dscf.org, and we started this conversation about mule deer. Uh, there, there's a Mule Deer Foundation that does a tremendous job in terms of educating and in terms of assisting in management program, and we have provided monies through the DSC Foundation to various Mule Deer Foundation uh, several of the projects that they're done, which includes everything from education to educating the landowner, educating the hunter, educating the public, to setting up and and establishing these underpasses, overpasses that have been long traditional migratory routes. Because as we mentioned, particularly the Rocky Mountain mule deer, there are a lot of those deer, deer that spend part of the year here and part of the year oh, yeah. totally different. And sometimes that distance is like 300 miles from, from summer uh, fall range to, to uh, winter and, and early spring range. So get involved. And you can just Google the Mule Deer Foundation as well, too. But I think it's muledeer.org is the, the website there. But uh, coming back to the mule deer... You took your first mule deer this year.
2: I did, and it was the most thrilling experience I had. But
1: now, what has it done to you?
2: <laughs>
1: I would say I
2: was hooked, but that doesn't seem to be elaborate enough. I have, I have not gotten my brain to come off of my next mule deer hunt. I'm, I am. I long for now just spending an entire season chasing mule deer as far as I can. I mean, uh, there's just nothing like looking through that scope and seeing a mule deer (laughs) down
1: there. Whether you pull the trigger or not, right? I could care less. I
2: I You know, one of the things that I think what helped is we spent so much time chasing mule deer this year. I got to look at so many and in so many ways from – Your methodology of calling up the nose that pulls in the bucks and having them from right in our face to glassing out and and seeing them to looking at them through a scope. I have looked at them through a tremendous amount of lenses from still photography to videography we did. And and I just absolutely love every single thing about them. And. I don't care what I have to do. I, I will never live another day of my, another year of my life where I did not harvest mules.
1: <laughs> you know, over the years, I've, I've been very fortunate. I've hunted mulelears from up in Alberta through uh, Montana, a little bit in Wyoming, a bunch in Colorado, a whole lot in New Mexico, a whole lot in Texas. And, and uh, Never have hunted Arizona, but uh, I've hunted down in San Mexico too, or down in Mexico as well too. And to me, again, it's that, I've made my living on a lot of different ways with white-tailed deer, but my favorite animal really to hunt is the mule deer. And part of that has to do with the people you're involved with, the country they live in, and just the majesty, I I don't know how else to describe it, of of an older, mature buck, that he just, he, the way he carries himself, the way he looks, you know, there's something truly, truly special about it. And if, Whether he has three points up where he doesn't have the back fork, which I've taken some of those really nice ones like that, or whether he's got those double forks that look like slingshots up there, you yeah. know, and oh my God, it's just, it, the, there's something that, flips a trigger or a switch or something inside me whenever I see those or even think about them. <laughs> you know, that's a good
2: point you brought up is the country they live in. Yeah. I think that's what really helps. They live in gorgeous country. You know, I mean they those, that canyon country to the mountain country, even the you know, even the 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 rural desert country that they live in, you know. It's just it's it's, it's gorgeous. I my, I can't wait to to chase them up in the mountains with snow and and that, that's that's what my brain's on right now and that's all I can think about. You're gonna get me itching in my seat right here. <laughs>
1: i'm laughing because i know exactly how you feel that's something i've developed i've had for most of my lifetime and and, and i've hunted mule deer a lot of years and hope to hunt them a whole lot more in the future as well too I, i'm like you i don't want a year to go by where i don't perceive mule deer at least one place you know and if i can do it in two or three different places certainly going to do that now all that said you've been the host of the journey and and by being somewhat of a co-host we we were able to capture a little bit of footage this year for the show yes and tell people where they can see the journey because it is and i'll I'll interrupt very quickly before you even to get to say anything I've, i've been associated with a lot of different shows and i i can't think of anyone I'm more proud of to be associated with, including my old show that I did for years among the, the last years, Trailing the Hunter's Moon, with being associated with you in this particular effort, because it, there's a very unique approach and we got some more things that we'll talk about in another podcast coming up that we're working on. But uh, what w- where do they find the journey? Well,
2: right now we are on Carbon TV. Um, we're also, we're, we're, posting on moving a lot of the episodes as well, over to YouTube and that's at the journey television. Right. Um, we're doing a fair amount of teasers and build ups and shorts, um, that are on YouTube as well. Um, we will soon in the future be moving the show into more opportunities for people to see. Um, we're hopefully with fingers crossed, we'll be available on Amazon prime as well. Um, I'm hoping that, like I said, it's the May 2nd. I'm hoping within the next two weeks that'll be available
1: because uh, yeah, by the time this airs, there's a good possibility we will be airing yeah, there. Yeah,
2: that, that's, that, that's right. Um, so by that time, it'll be there. And, and of course, on social media. Right. Um, so we try to air all the episodes, full length, cut up versions, real shorts, what have you will, um, on all of our social media, which on Facebook is The Journey Television. Um, same thing with Instagram. Um, we have now gotten into TikTok, which I'm not familiar with, and you know that's that's okay. But um, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, it's all there. Um, and the same with this podcast. We 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 we're going to now be having the video form of the podcast on our um, Carbon TV channel. Exactly. But we are also going to be doing a new series called reports from the field, which I'm really excited about.
1: Yeah, about the time this airs, we will, you'll be able to probably find it without a whole lot of problem at all. Um, And again, too, of course, we do the podcast two different ways. But I will also tell you that not every podcast episode I do, the, the DSC's Campfires with Larry Weissoon Audio is a weekly podcast. With the uh, video version, which is on DSC's Campfires with Larry Weissoon YouTube channel, among other places, we're going to be very selective in some of the shows that we put there to where, uh, there, to me, there's some that need to be in video form. There's some that can simply be done in, in audio. Yes. But also, as we were talking before we started the, the episode today we're probably going to be putting the journey on dsc campfires with larry Weiss soon youtube page yes. as well too so yes uh, there's an opportunity there we want to give you every opportunity to see the journey quite frankly because <laughs> as i said i'm so very proud to be associated with it there's it's entertaining it is fun and there's education there. I mean, it's not education where we're beating somebody over the head going, this, is this, this, this kind of thing. It, it, there's so much information in there that it, you kind of glean without even really realizing it. And that's something that I've always told people. I said, to me, a lot of the things I do, whether it's management, whether it's hunting, I don't care that you remember it's me and i want you to, to to absorb it and even maybe three or four years later you do what we talked about or showed and you go golly i remember seeing that or hearing that somewhere kind of thing yep. you know and so to me some of what we're doing through in the field which will be in the field uh, or the the journey or this particular podcast and who knows what other <laughs> efforts will uh, will branch off into the future is we want it to be entertaining. We want it to be fun. But hopefully in some of that that we do, there'll be a little bit of something that you can pick up that you can use to be a better wildlife manager, to be a better hunter, to be a better outdoor person, and particularly to be a more informed outdoor person.
2: Yeah, and that's really what the journey was all about. It's that's about right. what, like you said, we may not teach you something, but if we can remind you of one thing that may help you do something later on, or you can learn one small aspect, or or maybe you've been doing something your, your way and we give it our opinion of a different way. And, you know, if that helps, that's what it's about. It's. You know, we're not necessarily out to, to have a show about killing the biggest new world record, although It'd we're not nice. going to turn our hands away to it, <laughs> but, be nice, but but. It, it. But we both have a passion for wildlife. We both have a, a, a lifelong passion, dedication to conservation and giving education towards it, just like we were talking about what a membership to DSC does and what a simple, simply purchasing a hunting license does. That's what it's about. Is making sure that this lifestyle is here for my kids and my grandkids and generations to come. And and I will tell you one thing that you will often see on our show, and that is us making efforts to introduce children, women, grandparents, anybody who's never hunted will be an, a, a definitive effort at all times to introduce multiple people to hunting. In this this coming season, we have about four or five hunts already lined up with, with multiple people that have never hunted before and they've got the curiosity peak and we're gonna help them achieve that goal no matter what they're, What they want to hunt, we're going to make it happen. So that's that's what we have. Absolutely. So to me,
1: the takeaways on all this today is we love mule deer.
2: (laughs) Buy a hunting license. Become a member of a conservation organization like DSC. If you haven't hunted mule deer, you need to. I'm absolutely fascinated with them. And don't miss a single episode of the Journey or DSC Campfires. Larry Weisson.
1: Okay, how can they best get in touch with you? Because now you also have Stonehurst Production, and yeah. through that you're doing TV shows and you're doing podcasts and you're doing all kinds of things. So, how does somebody get in touch with Stonehurst? Because they're the guys that are these guys are the ones that are producing this particular show or this particular podcast and the, the Journey and. From the field and some others so how do they do that and then uh one more time we're going to tell people how to find the journey and how to find dsc's campfires elsewhere
2: so at the time that this airs once again but as of effective today may 2nd um we have made it very simple for anybody to get a hold of anything regarding you or the journey or me Or Stonehurst by simply, if you want to email us at info at stonehurstproduction.com. If you email info at stonehurstproduction.com, that will come directly to this office. You'll get that email will go directly to me. It'll go directly to Larry and you'll get a response. Um, Our social media, you know, everything with Larry is on his Instagram and Facebook is Larry Wysoom. Um, on YouTube, the uh, DSC Campfires with Larry Weisun, no spaces. That'll get you to the YouTube channel and the Journey. On all you on all social media platforms is the Journey Television. That'll get you right there, and, and feel free to message us there. Um, I assure you, like I say, every time I'm on here, you aren't getting some office person responding. If you've directed a question towards Larry, it's Larry responding. If you've directed it towards me, it's me responding, but probably the very fastest way, because we're not around too terribly much is to email us. Um, and like I said, once again, that's info at stonehurstproductions.com and all that information will be listed below as well for you to click on and go through and, uh, Any questions, we're always happy to answer. And we're always more than happy to talk more about conservation.
1: Absolutely. Anything you'd like to hear about, you don't want to hear about, you'd like to learn more about, get in touch with us. Of course, the audio version is available on Spotify Mm -hmm. and Carbon TV and, and Waypoint TV and... Google this and you know this <laughs> podcast and that. We're available almost anywhere, so we really appreciate you joining us again today. Look forward to everybody being right back here with us next week, and uh, no telling where we'll head next week, but uh, we'll have an enjoyable time doing it. And we hope you'll join us right back here around the campfire. DSC's Campfires has also been brought to you by the Crown Bar in the Grange in Roundtop, Texas. Texas Wildlife Association, Double Nickel Taxidermy, H3 Whitetail Solutions, and Burnham Brothers Game Calls.